The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Mike, today, two of my favorite things are being uh, spliced together in this awesome interview we have coming up. And that's uh, Booze and Dragon's Den. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we have uh, one of the uh, dragons on Dragon's Den, Manjeet Minhas, also co-founder and co-owner of Minhas Breweries, Distillery and Wineries. Um, super pumped to have her on. I haven't said super pumped in a long time, there but it's go. back. It's back. A new, <laughs> a new season of the Unlikely Innovators means a rehash of old things. <laughs> no, of course, it's, it was great to have her on. What did you think? Uh, it was great. Again, I think when you and I started the show uh, way back when, like we always envisioned getting getting a dragon on the show. I think especially since we do a similar type of an event here at Cambrian every year for this annual student innovation challenge that again, having somebody who has, uh, has gone through pitches, uh, you know, obviously hearing from multiple different companies throughout the year. Um, you know, I think it was great to have her on the show to hear her perspective on dragons. But certainly I think as an unlikely innovator, as we talked with her about how she, you know, went into school to become a petroleum engineer and then realized that there was a gap in terms of what they drank and how that they could make a better, better spirit or a better beer. And they went into that. And I think, you know, what I really appreciated from her, from one of the questions we asked her was just how, you know, her and her brother didn't take business. So that gives them a different perspective in the industry that maybe some of their competitors don't have. And I think that's just such, that's so key. And I think that's why you've seen some of the really successful pitches at our student innovation challenge, because, you know, as much as we do have a lot of students pitching from the business program where they get the training to do these types of, uh, these types of presentations, you get students from trades and engineering technology who also may not have the business background, but they know how things work and they know what needs to be done to make a process improved or to make a new product. So again, I uh, it, w- it was certainly great. I did geek out on the behind the scenes stuff with Dragon's Den, but I think just her path of, of going, you know, starting off to become a petroleum engineer now becoming, uh, you know, she says in her bio, uh, a beer baroness uh, is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think we shouldn't waste any more time. Not that this has been a waste, but uh, let's let's go now to Manjeet Minhas. We're back, and today we're joined uh, by Manjeet Minhas. Uh, Manjeet Minhas is the co-founder and co-owner of Minhas Breweries, Distillery, and Wineries. She was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, this petroleum engineer student turned beer baroness is a dragon on the hit show uh, Dragon's Den, which is on CBC in its 16th season. Uh, for which she's been uh, with the show for eight seasons. Uh, Manjeet leads a privately owned empire that had revenues in excess of $220 million last year. Uh, Though trained as a petroleum engineer, she has become a specialist in brand development, marketing, sales management, and retail negotiations. Uh, She started her companies at the ripe old age of 19 in Alberta uh, when she launched uh, her spirits company in 1999 and her beers in 2002 in Alberta with her business partner and brother, uh, Ravinder Minhas. Their group of breweries is now the ninth largest in the world. And as a company, they produce more than 120 beers, spirits, liqueurs, and wines that ship all across Canada and the U.S., as well as over six, over 16 different countries overseas. Minhas Brewery makes all of the Kirkland brand beer for Costco, which, as you can imagine, is quite a lot, as well as all the craft beers under the Trader's Joe, Trader Joe's label in the U.S., Uh, Manjeet lives in Calgary, where she was born and raised with her husband and two young daughters. And now we are very pleased to be joined by Manjeet Minhas. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So that's your formal biography. (laughs) Um, 
And uh, we like to, to say that we're getting really good at reading biographies. But what we do <laughs> as soon as we're done the biography is basically want to sort of hear your biography in your own words. And the way I'll prompt that today is uh, what stuck out for me is how does a petroleum engineer get into brewing and distilling? Is that a more straightforward path than I think it is? Well, I think the path of entrepreneurship, no matter what it is, is never a straightforward path. Um, and a lot of it is timing, luck, serendipity, a passion, uh, a variety of different things. And um, and so, yeah, I was a first year engineering student here at the U of C, um, which most people, you know, pursue, especially in Calgary, especially since the energy sector is um, definitely the place to be for a lot of things like my mom told me. <laughs> um, my dad was um, also an engineer in the old patch. And, and so, um, you know, he, he, but just like anything, sometimes um, when you're not working for yourself or you're at the mercy of a commodity such as oil and gas, um, there's downturns. And there was a downturn in the mid 90s. And my dad was suddenly laid off from one of the largest oil companies. And we were a middle-class family in Calgary. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My brother and I were teenagers. And suddenly uh, my dad was at home along with my mom. And so there was still a mortgage to pay and food to put on the table. And so my dad, um, also with some luck and some timing, um, uh, by chance, um, has stumbled upon a, a new rule change that the premier at the time, Ralph Klein, had changed and he privatized retail liquor in Alberta in 94. And so my dad was one of the very few first um, entrepreneurs that opened up a liquor store in Calgary and two more subsequently after that. And that was um, our teenage childhood that was around the retail liquor stores. So definitely by osmosis and just a lot of time spent there, evening, weekends, you know, summer holidays, spring break, it didn't really matter. When we weren't in school, we were at the our family business, which was um, retail liquor stores. And so um, definitely a lot of understanding of the marketplace, the products, um, consumers. And so that's kind of where the idea started of a brand of spirits that was um, high quality, um, but everyday fair price. Um, which was really unheard of in the um, in 1999 when we started, and then after that, when um, we discovered that we had a hit with our tequila and our Irish cream specifically, um, we decided to do the same thing um, for beer. You know, as engineering students, <laughs> we definitely <laughs> drank a fair bit of beer and thought that a lot of what we could afford was crap, so we were going to make something better. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and sometimes, you know, um, I guess all entrepreneurial stories, as I've heard thousands of them now, um, as a VC investor, um, a lot of the greatest ideas and businesses start from a need of your own and, or a thought or a naivety that you can do something better, um, than what exists in the marketplace. And so, uh, that's kind of how it started. So no, not really a, a direct path by any means, uh, but, uh, definitely, a path of seeing a need, um, seeing something that we didn't love in the marketplace and thought we could do it better. Well, yeah. And the next question I have for that is obviously, I think given your, you know, engineering training, you have a different perspective. I think when it comes to, to businesses, especially this side of the business, um, I was, so I was just wondering, I have my own ideas about how this may have helped you, but can you talk a little bit about how you were able to apply your engineering training to your business ventures and how it's, it's helped you grow the business to what it is now? 
Yeah. So I think a lot of, no matter what I would have studied um, other than business, which I did not. And I think that that actually has been for my brother and I, um, one of the great things that we didn't study, because we think very differently than a lot of our competitors, um, not only when we're beginning, but now. And I think that um, a lot of that out-of-box thinking is not only by being a customer, but also but not having the same training as a lot of other you know, executives or entrepreneurs. And so I would say it, um, having an engineering background definitely taught me process, you know, um, making alcohol is definitely a process and it is a strict recipe. Um, and it also taught me that you can continuously learn. One thing I am always doing it as an entrepreneur is always learning every single day and how you do that, um, is also, you know, um, it definitely that you, something I believe that you learn through post-secondary education and becoming an adult, um, understanding where to go, how to break out of the molds, but also how to have confidence in not only your decisions, but learning from them. And so I think that no matter what it was, um, whether it be, you know, engineering or law or psychology, it really didn't matter what um, I studied afterwards, but it was about as becoming into an adult and, and understanding what skills and talents I have and what also I don't have, what I'm not good at and what I need to hire for. And so I think that, um, you know, you learn a lot in those formative or early 20s uh, when you are in university about yourself more importantly than anything else. Mm -hmm. that's for sure I remember my dad saying like you drank enough beer you should be probably get into the brewing industry <laughs> but uh it was a missed gonna, opportunity for us see, Steve that's for yeah, sure yeah no, <laughs> I know I hear that but uh I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears for a second and uh hopefully this doesn't seem too disjointed I was actually at a restaurant here in Sudbury Ontario where where Mike and I where Mike and I live and I was enjoying Negronis all night and uh, all night. There, yeah, all night. Well, I'm not going to say how long the night was, but uh, it was it was a good piece of the night. And there were a number of people who tried not my Negroni in post COVID times, but they got their own. And, they, and a lot of them are saying, wow, I really don't like gin. And you often hear people say that, you know, like, I don't like gin because I think it tastes like, you know, insert anything here. Usually it's pine needles. Um, <laughs> now you have a gin uh, that's won awards, the uh, the Arningstall's uh, gin. If, if you're looking to describe like the taste profile of gin to try and get someone to try it for the first time, uh, and you can answer this question however you want about gin, but what would, what would your advice be or how would you coax someone into doing that? Well, I think that's the thing is that there's so many different types of gin. Like, sure, there are some that taste like pine needles, some that taste like lavender, some that are very citrus forward. Um, and so that's the thing. I think just as any consumer needs to be, you need to be educated. Gin isn't gin isn't gin. Just like a vodka isn't a vodka, it's vodka. Same with a beer isn't a beer is a beer. It's a different if you're having a Pulsner or a lager or an IPA. So I think that the most important part of consuming any liquor is that you understand really what it is made for and what it is made of. There are so many great artisanal products, especially gin. And so we wanted to make a gin um, that was really great, not only straight up, but most importantly in a martini and in a Negroni. Um, because you might not know, but a gin originally was a gin martini, not a vodka martini. That's mm -hmm. kind of a bomb thing that has changed it, but it's gone backwards now um, into what an original martini was. And so I definitely myself, of course, do prefer um, a gin martini. And so we set out to make a martini that was a, a gin that wasn't too citrus, too lavender, too, you know, too pine needly, um, a kind of a great sipping, but also complement um, to a martini. So, 
you know, I would say you need to try a few. Of course, I love my own. Um, but I would say that um that you know, you don't don't expect to try one of anything ever and mm-hmm. you know, fall in love. I think just like anything, you have to uh, do some trial and error to find out what taste you like, but also um what type of gin you like. Like ours is a London dry. And so, you know, there's a variety of different styles, different alcohols, different ways of consuming. Do you like tonic? Do you like soda? Do you like a mix of both? Do you like a martini and a grunt? Like there's so many different ways um, of having um, a, a, a spirit that I think that it's important that you take the time to figure out what you like and what you don't like, but don't just give it one shot and give up. <laughs> well, speaking of, uh, of, of trying other spirits. I did want to ask you this before I, we had some other questions about the business is that uh, I noticed on, on your Twitter feed that Punjabi club rye whiskey is now at uh, all LCBOs in Ontario. So for those of our listeners who haven't tried it yet, I think I'm among that group, but now I'm intrigued. Um, what would you say about Punjabi club? Uh, I, I guess to any of the rye whiskey drinkers out there and why they should maybe grab a bottle of that instead of what uh, they've been sipping on in the past. Yeah, so um, we've been in the LCBO for three years now, which is really nice and across the country with Punjabi Club. And the roots of how we started with Punjabi Club are really interesting. Um, We didn't really want to touch something um, before that was kind of to our roots in our family um, before we really knew what we were getting into with the whiskey. And so um, eight years ago, we took a trip down to my um, father's ancestral home in North India in Punjab. And we finally convinced my my, my parents and my father, especially, um, and my uncles, in, in order to show us my our grandfather's recipe. He used to make moonshine at home, as many people um, and did back in you know um, the 50s and 60s when um, alcohol wasn't readily available, especially in the villages in India. And um, he added used to add 12 different ingredients to it, everything from rose petals to cardamom to some fennel to some really interesting ingredients, which softened. Um, the whiskey, uh, but also added a really unique taste to it. And so we took, um, you know, brought it back um, and, and we took lots of notes. We brought, bought some ingredients um, and, and some of those um, flavor essences back from India also on our trip gave it to our master distillers. They took a couple years to get it right um, to make sure that it was authentic and really was an ode to my grandfather's recipe. Um, And then we came out with Punjabi Club. And um, and it has it it is um, definitely very different than Crown Royal or any other whiskey that you might taste. Um, I prefer to have it on ice. You can have it with Coke, too. But I think you bastardize it when you do that (laughs) because it's got a lot of great flavors to it. Um, But it definitely is a unique uh, rye whiskey with um, an Indian you know, touch to it, um, but also something that has some flavors that maybe you're not expecting. But it is made um, here in North America, not in India, but it's got some ingredients that we bring from over there. That's awesome. Uh, Just uh, one of the things I do, you know, among other things with this podcast, I also manage a mining research center here in Sudbury. It's kind of the mining capital of uh, Northeastern North America, if I'm not speaking too boldly. And one of the things we've seen in our industry is the importance of environmental, social, and governance when it comes to operations. Mike and I just aren't familiar with the sort of, has ESG also become as large of a, uh, of a, of a hot button issue in uh, brewing and distilling? Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so even before it had a title, 
I would, um, I would say almost 20 years ago, um, we started an initiative, especially on the environmental side of things. And the reason we did that was because we believed as not only, you know, global citizens, but also as manufacturers, we can create a lot of waste. And we wanted to reduce the amounts of waste in a lot of different ways, but also let's face it, it also helps the bottom line. When I can reuse my water, reuse my glycol, I can use less plastic, less cardboard, um, a variety of other things. Nobody can do that in a bubble though. We definitely had to convince a lot of our um, uh, retail partners um, to make sure that we were um, able to do it without sacrificing the quality or the integrity of whether it be the box or the six pack ring, which we are also phasing out now um, and or a variety of other things. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, that is something that we have always been big advocates of. Um, and I think that that is also a big part where um, my and my brother's engineering background has really helped in order to bring in sound engineering principles to um, reduce uh, our environmental footprint um, at our uh, at our all of our breweries and distilleries around the world uh, but um, in, in in as far as the industry goes yes I am on actually um, the board of the Brewers Association and I chair the ESG committee because we are starting as an industry to do a lot more helping each other because um, a lot of smaller craft breweries are not able to do as much as we can on a large scale but they need to start some Somewhere, and sometimes they need help. Um, and so I think that that's really fantastic to get them to try to reuse everything from their malt bags, um, you know, to their rings, to a variety of different things. How, um, how can we all be better for the environment and have social responsibility and do it together and also not, um, you know, it affects the quality of the product that we put out um, and our integrity as an industry, um, but also uh, be a better um, global citizen for sure. Yeah, and I think it could probably contribute to having less guys that look like me running craft breweries. Um, you know, the white white guys with beards are, seem to be the, the the norm when you go to, you know, craft brewers around you know at least Canada, from my experience. So, having more sort of female led and and more diverse people will probably uh, probably be a good thing too. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in DE&I for a variety of reasons, but I think different perspectives and diversity of um, experience, of background, of gender, of age, of um, just thought is is really, um, really important too um, in any industry that is growing and definitely brewing and distilling over the last um, six, seven years has exploded. You know, when we started 23 years ago, there mm -hmm. was only five other brewers. And so um, it is It has definitely come a long, long way. In Alberta here alone, we have 127 brewers. And it's fantastic because there's lots of choice. Um, it's great for, you know, the economy, a lot of new jobs, a lot of people finding um, amazing talents and skills they did not know they had. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a, that's definitely a worthwhile trend uh, to, and we hope it keeps happening. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, obviously what uh, you might be more well known for uh, over the last eight years, and that is more about Dragon's Den. First, uh, what is that transition like going from a boardroom of your own company? I imagine you made other sort of VC investments before becoming a Dragon, but how was that transition to being on camera as well? 
Yeah, definitely. We did um, do a lot of investments. They were a little bit larger scale though. And mm -hmm. so it was interesting though, when they called me, um, you know, eight, just over eight years ago, it's surprising that it's been that long. <laughs> in a lot of ways, like it's gone by um, in a blink of an eye. And when they called me, I had known actually almost all the previous dragons and, and the current cast at the time. And um, funny enough, I don't know how they got my parents' phone number, but one of the producers did. And by <laughs> chance, it was a Thursday afternoon. I was at my parents' house. I had a one and three-year-old. I was uh, dropping them off and um, I picked up the phone and it was a producer. And um, he said to me, you know, he's XYZ, he's from the show. He was, they've been following my story. Um, CBC had done many stories on my brother and I in the past before, including on the show. Some people might remember CBC Marketplace. Um, no, mm -hmm. no, CBC. CBC Venture, sorry, mm -hmm. um, where they used to follow two different businesses around for half an hour each. It was it was um, quite an interesting show, and so um, and so they said, you know, we have two seats coming available um, this season. Would you like to come in for an audition? And I said, thanks for calling. Took you long enough, but no, <laughs> I'm uh, no thank you. And I and the reason I said took you long enough was I really did feel that the panel up until that stage, the nine years before that didn't really look and reflect what Canada looked like, but also really what the entrepreneurial um, spirit, but also what entrepreneurs look like of this country as far as background and age, um, but also diversity goes. There was um, no other colored um, individuals um, before that of any minority background. And so, um, except Vikram. Vikram had been on it for a year and decided that it wasn't for him. And I had known that also. And so I said, no, thanks. And, but that at dinner that night at my parents' house, I actually casually mentioned it to everybody in my family. And they all jumped on me saying, what the hell, why wouldn't you go? <laughs> and so um, I had a lot of reasons why not to do it. And I think we can all find a lot of reasons why not to do something new, including, like I said, I had really young daughters at the time. Um, but also I was never the face of the company. My brother always was, and that was a conscious decision by us both. And so um, they kept convincing me that, listen, if you can't wait for somebody else to take the stage to be, you know, to um, look like what you would like for your daughters, for your nieces. Um, but also what makes you think that you're going to get it? And they were auditioning 12 people. <laughs> um, and I said, okay, well, if nothing else, it'll be an experience. And so I flew down two days later on the Sunday, Monday morning, had an audition. And two days later, they called me and said they'd like me to come. And so, um, you know, that was eight years ago now, and it's been an amazing experience. I met some fabulous entrepreneurs um, that I've been able to help, some not, um, but, you know, I really do um, think of it as, as, as lifting while you climb. I think all entrepreneurs are always, including myself, you know, we're the eighth largest brewery in North America. I'm always looking to climb, um, but bring people along with me, help them make some of um, not the same mistakes I did because I didn't necessarily have um, a ton of guidance. I had some great mentors, but I didn't have um, as much guidance as I would have loved. And so I'm hoping just to do that um, to a lot of other um, entrepreneurs who are starting out. And it has been um, really fantastic. I've had 31 investments over the last eight seasons. Most of them have done well, not all of them, um, but we've learned a lot from the ones that haven't. And I think 
um, it's an experience for them and for I. And so um, along with it, I've been able to get into so many different industries that I never would have dreamed of from fashion to toddlers to tech to like the list goes on. And so um, it is it is definitely um, an experience that I cherish, not only with the entrepreneurs, but also with my fellow dragons. Our cast is constantly changing. Um, and that is also a lot of fun for us too, to learn from each other, um, to make some really amazing friendships because we spend a lot of time together, more than we spend with our spouses almost. <laughs> yeah. um, literally, not only during filming, but definitely after the fact too. And so, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard entrepreneurship can be a lonely place. And so it's nice to find some like-minded individuals that have found some success in, in different areas too. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned those 31 investments. And one of the questions we wanted to ask you is that obviously on the show, you obviously see the ones that uh, the deals get closed in the episode or, or they don't. Um, but can you maybe talk about some of the deals that maybe weren't able, you weren't able to kind of get solidified on the show, but after the fact they kind of came together, have you had any experiences with those deals? Sometimes we'll see those, uh, those recaps they show on the show where like this person was declined in the episode, but after the fact, you guys got together and worked out a deal. Has that happened in your case in the last eight seasons at all? Oh yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, um, only less than half of what we see in the den actually makes it to air. And a lots of them are not even, uh, a lot of the deals that we make are not, don't even make air, um, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. it is called a factual entertainment. So factual and that it's unscripted. We know absolutely nothing about anybody who's coming in. We have no say. Um, all we find out seconds before they walk through the doors is their name. Cause often they're so nervous. They forget their name. <laughs> But other than that, we get 45 to 60 minutes with them in the den um, because we know nothing. We get everything out of them. They can't hand us any paper and they have to talk it through and um, or demo it through. But um, all the numbers and the business plan, they have to talk that through with us. And so um, what happens is then what you see goes down to six or seven minutes. And sometimes there's conversations before that, you know, we're wondering, but not really. And sometimes after the fact, because we are in a bubble ourselves also. So we can't call a friend. We can't search anything up. And sometimes when we go um, and leave the den, our teams who are watching from a feed or behind the scenes um, have a lot of other ideas. So we do contact them um, after to say, hey, maybe we can work something out and be interested about it. Um, and or sometimes um, when one dragon makes a deal and they see it going in a different way um, and, and, you know, we switch off, we say, okay, well, maybe this isn't for me and, or the entrepreneur doesn't want to go into the direction I want to, um, you know, you had spoke about something that interested them and, or vice versa, maybe you can take a look at it. So that happens often a lot too. And so as is in the world of business, Things are always and constantly changing from day to day. And um, it is it is definitely a pleasant surprise sometimes when things can happen um, outside the den and off camera um, and we can find um, some synergies and a partnership that that um, can be fruitful to both parties. But yeah, it and, and sometimes we speak about it and sometimes we don't. A lot mm -hmm. of the times the entrepreneur don't, doesn't want um, for a variety of reasons to have um, their story be told and or the inner you know, workings of um, the valuations, the dollars, the cents, mm -hmm. the, uh, the partners 
And I think that that too, um, um, everybody has different preferences for different reasons. And so, um, you know, I always tell the Dragon's Den producers, we should make another two shows. One that is behind the scenes and two is a follow-up to everybody, good and bad, what happens. Cause like, you know, it does frustrate me a little bit, to be honest, that they only focus on the good and they don't even do a ton of that. Um, they maybe get three to five updates um, every season. And that's not nearly enough to talk about really what happens, but they only talk about often the big successes. And that is not the reality of entrepreneurship. Not everybody, I mean, only a small majority are very successful in the first two years. Mm -hmm. And so I do wish that they were a little more um, forthcoming and honest with um, some of the ones that didn't work out for us, but also for themselves. And, um, and I think that, you know, yeah, I am the tough dragon because I do feel um, a lot about business is tough and it's not all, you know, flowers and candy. And so there have to be some tough conversations, but some also peeling back of the onion and some truth telling that is done by entrepreneurs to say what really goes on um, that isn't so pretty all the time. I would love to see a behind the scenes because now I'm thinking of a whole other question when you mentioned how much time goes into these to these interviews that you have with the with these businesses or these entrepreneurs and how we only see half of that and I'm just looking at uh, looking to show up online again and you know you have 20 episodes in a season you often see two to three I think successful pitches in that show plus maybe some that didn't go their way so how long does it take to actually put this all together for a season right because again if you're having 20 episodes and you're spending upwards of an hour with each of these entrepreneurs um yeah i'm just curious now to see how much time you guys truly are spending together because it certainly sounds like a lot yeah oh definitely so since the pandemic we started shooting 10 there was a lot of um fear of a variety of things we were lucky to be even mm -hmm. shooting um so i just came back in may for example from shooting the fall season sometimes we go back in for the winter the last three years as you can imagine have been up and down um but yeah so the the average math goes we see uh, for 10 episodes we see 100 pitches and 46 air and um we see each of those like i said to 45 to 60 minutes we see 10 to 11 a day we are filming <laughs> just over in 11 hours. I get in at 6.30 in the morning into Dragon's Den Studios, into downtown Toronto, the Front Street Studios where the 10th floor. Um, and we leave at uh, 5.55. Um, we're unionized. Um, oh, 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 the uh, CBC is. So lights have to be out at six o'clock. We leave much later after that, but um, but the lights on the studio have to be out at, at then. So um, yeah, they're very long days. We film through the weekends. We will randomly get a um, day off here or there. And um, often the random days off are promotional days. So we film all of our photos and our promos and interviews um, because the set is built usually for uh, four to six weeks only. And then it moves on to something else. And so, um, yeah, it is an, it is a lot, is an intense <laughs> amount of time, a focused amount of time, which actually I quite prefer because it'd be really hard to go in and out of that um, in our day-to-day -day lives. But essentially we take, you know, a three to four week break from our real lives. Um, it's always in the same time in spring, um, April, May, um, like I said, except the first two years, the pandemic we mm -hmm. shot in end of August, we were lucky to get it out um, five weeks before we aired, uh, which is very rare. But um, but yeah, it it, it is definitely um, a dedicated amount of time, um, as is anything that you see on TV, I guess. Yeah, it's like a second full time job. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you're actually coming to visit our community. Uh, 
upcoming this fall. Uh, right. Mike, you can remind me of the dates, but you're going to be in Sudbury for the Northern Ontario Angels event uh, called Venture North. Um, mm -hmm. And I have, a, I have a bit of a, this is a biased question because we're sort of from uh, non-obvious places of innovation. But in your experience, would you say that there's some uh, untapped opportunity for investment in companies that fall sort of outside the typical Canadian hotbeds like Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver? Do you have any views on that? Absolutely. And yes. And I would say that so many of my great investments that have had a fabulous return and been successful have come outside of um, those large markets. One, because they hustle a bit more. <laughs> and I don't want to make that a stereotyping. <laughs> Um, but I would say um, that um, that there are unique opportunities um, when you are in smaller um, areas. And so I will say I am also a little bit biased because our first major successes came from a lot of rural, smaller town areas, whether it be in Alberta, you know, we entered Calgary and Edmonton very last um, and, and the rest of the country. We came into all the big cities um, well after we were established and successful in the smaller markets um, for a variety of reasons. They were more welcoming, they were more open to new products. Um, and also it was great focus groups and testing ground for us. And so um, it was, it is something um, that I, that I, like I say, I'm a bit biased to. And I, and I come from Calgary, which I still live in and I choose to live here. And, um, and I, and I don't consider us one of those big metropolitan cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, like, Cal like in the rest of Canada. So I find myself as kind of that underdog too often. That's awesome. And um, we'd be remiss uh, if we didn't ask you this again, we're coming to the end of our, uh, our, our chat. And again, we appreciate how generous you've been with your time, but every year our department helps organize what is known as a Cambrian student innovation challenge, which right now is being uh, presented by RBC. And it's, we like to pitch, it's like a dragon's den, you know, for our students. Oftentimes we get students from skilled trades and engineering technology that are pitching innovative ideas, or we have students from the business program that have a business idea that they've been working on. Um, and so they do pitches to a panel of community judges, and then we award them with cash prizes, not quite so much as uh, you'd see on Dragon's Den, but I think enough to kind of help move them forward while they're doing their studies here at Cambrian. But what would be one piece of advice you would give to an aspiring student entrepreneur to help prepare them for a pitch of any kind, whether they're pitching for investment or just pitching their idea? Yeah, a couple of things I would say, uh, get to the point quickly. Um, you know, in this day and age, a lot of people don't have the patience to listen to long, just to understand. I need to understand what the business is very quickly. Um, and so I think that that is really, and I mean, very quickly, like 90 seconds. And I would say also in uh, the rest of the pitch, you have to answer um, the big five W's, take it down to the basics, who you are, what you're looking for, where you're from, why um, this product. Um, so, you know, the who, what, where, when, why, and then the how, how are you going to make this um, business product service, whatever it is, take off um, and why, and, and how you are going to be the winner. And so I think that um, if you can answer those basics, um, you are far ahead of most people who pitch. 
And that is coming from somebody, like I said, who's seen <laughs> thousands of pitches. Um, and so um, I too, you know, am definitely in sales and selling and pitching all the time. And, and that's um, definitely where we take it to as quick as we can um, to grab somebody's attention. You can get into all the bigger details later as they ask questions and see what they're interested in. Um, but also I would say whoever you're, you're pitching to, uh, you, you do need to make sure you know them and understand them also. Um, it's important to know your audience, uh, to know what will resonate with them, um, no matter who they are. So that'd be my advice. That's, that's great advice. I will make our students listen to this episode, but certainly I think we will <laughs> harvest that clip and share with them as they go into their, uh, their preparation for next year. So we'll want to let you go, but I do have two quick rapid fire questions for you. And then I promise we will let you go. I do have to ask you, uh, I knew, I know that you were at the Calgary stampede this year. I'm sure that's an annual, uh, event for you but did you try the mac and cheese flavored ice cream i did i and? did i did usually i'm i'm not a massive foodie who likes new things uh don't mini donuts are my day daily um stop um but i did and it was okay <laughs> it wasn't close but it, I didn't go back the second day to get it. <laughs> Not a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure there probably weren't that many people going back for, for seconds, but it, but good for you for trying it. And the last question I have for you is, uh, who is your favorite Yellowstone character? Oh my, well, it, you know, since I got to meet um, Kevin Costner when he came um, as our parade marshal, um, it, it definitely... Um, it, John Dutton, but I would say a very, very close second is Beth. If you would have asked me this before the stampede, I, I, I love the feistiness of her, oh. uh, the loyalty, the, yeah. Uh, but I would say it's a tie between the two. Yeah. I, I think I I'd say that Beth is probably my favorite character in terms of like trying to embody a character from Yellowstone. I think if I could somehow <laughs> take like the best of Casey and the best of Rip and put that together, but without committing crimes, um, that would be great. But yeah, Beth is, she's awesome. I like that you had that little, you know, asterisk on the yeah. side there. <laughs> yeah, one one caveat, not no, no crimes, but otherwise uh, a great, a great uh, cast for sure. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite shows. Looking forward to November for the new season for yeah. sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's why well, I mean, like, thank you so much for uh, for for being generous with with your time. I think Mike and I mo uh, might see you uh, at the Venture North event, but uh, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, and 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 how you've come to to get where you are. And I'm sure it'll be a, a really instructive for for our students and listeners. So thanks once again, uh, uh, Manjit Minhas, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Look forward to um, meeting you guys all in person in, uh, very shortly. Yeah, I will be there. I've got my ticket already. So looking forward to it. Take care. Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks. thanks. Well, that was great, Steve. Have you seen Yellowstone? Well, you noticed by how quiet I was at the <laughs> end there that no, I haven't. Oh. I'm a huge Kevin Costner fan. And I should say uh, there was there isn't a more stirring clip of video than his appearance on the Graham Norton show with Ricky Gervais when he talks about the inspiration and the story behind um, Dances with Wolves. So if you guys ever do check that out, just search uh, Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves. It's a, it's a very lovely story, but no, I've not seen Yellowstone. Oh, it's, you know, that brings up another memory of mine. Now I will check that out because when I was a kid, Dances with Wolves was one of my favorite movies and for sure it wasn't appropriate for me to have watched that movie at probably the age of before. I want to say I was probably like, eight years old same um, and it was it was a huge favorite of mine too my dad loved the film we yeah. watch it all the time i feel like it was on tv a lot 
Yeah, I, th- I think it was too, but we definitely had the VHS and we burned oh, that yeah. thing into the ground. Um, <laughs> so I will check that out. But no, if you like Kevin Costner, then you got to check out Yellowstone. It's it's outrageous, um, but it's so good. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, so all of those characters that we threw out there weren't ringing a bell with you. But I think, you know, if you're a Costner fan, you got to check out Yellowstone. Yeah, what do they call him? A Costner kid? No, that's not his fan club. But uh, no, I, I do love Kevin Costner. And I will check out Yellowstone. You know, funny enough, uh, in the uh, small gaps of time I spend away from my wife, she's managed to watch uh, and is up to date on it. So maybe well, I'll if, have to catch up. If you go home tonight and you mention Beth from Yellowstone, I'm sure Tanya will have something to say. But that's this is not just a Kevin Costner uh, slash Yellowstone fan club. Again, we were also <laughs> big fans of Manjeet Minhas, who joined us today. Yeah. Um, again, Steve, she is, uh, by the time you listeners uh, are hearing this episode, Manji will be coming to Sudbury uh, this week for uh, Northern Ontario Angels event Venture North. Of course, while we're recording this, I think limited tickets are still available. By the time you're hearing this, hopefully it's sold out. So again, me saying that probably does nothing for you because if you <laughs> haven't bought tickets already, you're probably not going. Uh, but we're, we're really excited to have her uh, come to our community for that event. Uh, but before we let the listeners go, see, did you have any parting last words or thoughts you wanted to share? We're being very formal this week. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, well, let me come to the lectern to deliver my fine. No, I just think that um, people need to realize that while Dragon's Den is a show, um, the I, I was kind of shocked by the... Uh, the uh the effort that goes into the sort of the back end and it's and it's really interesting to see the number of deals they see versus the number they show and then obviously the number that uh that filters down to being successful so uh it was it was a great uh time for me and uh i look forward to her uh sharing her her story uh with folks in Sudbury well i think that's uh there's no better way to end the show again thank you to Manjeet Minhas for joining us this week again i think her words uh, will resonate with our students going through the innovation challenges coming year, uh, but also just great to chat with her and hear about her career path. Until next time. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel, presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.